Well, today we celebrate Resurrection Day, and it's probably the most important holy day of the traditional church calendar. I wonder if any of you woke up this morning and thought, I wonder if this is the right day we should be celebrating this event. No? Probably not. No, the, uh, the powers that be put the date on your calendar for you, and the store shelves were stuffed with baskets and colored eggs and chocolate bunnies. And so today it must be. But it's a curious fact of history that for the first seven centuries of the New Testament church, Christians clashed over which day to celebrate the resurrection. You see, in Asia Minor, Christians thought it should be a fixed day. They thought it should be on the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan. That's when the Passover lamb would be slaughtered. So in that case, the resurrection day, it could land on any day of the week, depending upon the year. The Christians that believe that way, and this is the only big word I'm going to use today, the Christians who believe that way were called quartodecimans. Quartodecimans, and that's just the Latin word that means 14th, from the 14th day of Nisan. Most Christians, though, thought it should be celebrated on Sunday, the day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead. And they calculated it the same way the Quartodecimans did, but they put Resurrection Day on the first Sunday following Nisan 14. That made it what we call a movable holiday. So it lands on a different date depending upon the year. And of course, there were groups that disagreed with both of those positions, and they came up with dates of their own. Uh, In a letter in AD 387, Bishop Ambrose of Milan quipped that resurrection was celebrated on March 21st in Gaul, April 18th in Italy, and April 25th in Egypt. The church calendar was a disaster. So a group of bishops tried to settle the matter at the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325. And the bishops decided against the Quarto Decimans, and they declared them all heretics. And I'm sure that was helpful in gaining the unity that they were looking for. So it really wasn't until the early 800s that there was any sort of an agreement in the West on which day to celebrate the resurrection. And just in case you think that the church today is in full agreement, you should know that the Greek Orthodox Church still uses the Julian calendar, not the Gregorian calendar that we use. So this year, at least, the Orthodox will celebrate Christmas next Sunday on April 24th. But for all the confusion over the exact day it should be celebrated, Resurrection Day remains the most significant holy day for most Christians around the world. Well, the problem raised in our text this morning was not about when to celebrate the resurrection. It was far more basic than that. It was about if there even was such a thing as resurrection of the dead. Here's the setting. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter in about AD 54. Think about that date. That's only about 20 years after the resurrection So the resurrection was relatively recent news. 
Paul wrote the letter to a church that he had planted three years earlier in the ancient city of Corinth. He answered some of the questions that they had sent to him, and then he addressed a number of disputes that he knew were brewing within the church. And one of those disputes was about the resurrection. There were some in the church that claimed that there was no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. We see that in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed, this is Paul writing to this church that he founded. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And so Paul begins his response to this dispute. And he does that in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 15. He does it by laying out the historical facts of the gospel. The gospel is church lingo for good news. And the facts of that good news included the resurrection of Jesus. Paul said that this gospel was of first importance. It was of primary significance to the Corinthians. And so we also hold to the primary significance of the resurrection. We see it here as foundational to our faith. That's why we meet every Sunday. And that's why every Sunday we confess the truth of the resurrection as it's been formulated in the Apostles' Creed. You know the words, we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day, he arose again from the dead. And we mean nothing more by those words than what Paul said was of primary significance for the faith of the Corinthians. And that's how Paul laid the groundwork for his argument for the resurrection of the dead. He grounded it on the rock-solid reality of the resurrection of Jesus. And since that's the basis of Paul's argument, let's run through the evidence that he presented to the Corinthians in this chapter. Verse 3, Paul claimed that Christ died for our sins. And he said that that event was foretold in the writings or the scriptures. That's true. 700 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Isaiah told of the coming servant who would be pierced and crushed for the sins of his people. You can read that beautiful prophecy for yourself in Isaiah chapter 53. Among the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are copies of that ancient text that predate even the birth of Jesus by at least 100 years. It is a stunning prophecy. Even Jesus foretold what would happen to him. Mark 8 is just one of many examples in the Gospels. And he began to teach them, teaching the disciples that is, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. In verse 4, for Paul claimed that Christ was buried. Now, that seems like an obvious thing to do with a dead body, right? But it's a crucial fact that undergirds this good news. 
You see, Jesus was really dead. He wasn't passed out or in a coma. His heart stopped beating. And they pulled his lifeless body from the cross and they buried him. It's true that criminals crucified by the Romans in the first century were often dumped into common graves. But in the case of our Lord Jesus, we know exactly which grave he was buried in. It was the tomb of a man named Joseph of Arimathea. He was a well-known and well-respected member of the Jewish council. So there was no mistaking what happened here. Christ really died and he was buried. Those were verifiable facts. We're still in verse 4. Paul now declares that Christ was raised from the dead on the third day. Again, Jesus was truly dead. It was not a near-death experience. He was inside a tomb wrapped in grave clothes for nearly three days. The tomb was now empty, and his body was gone. And that's one of those facts for which skeptics have never been able to give a satisfactory answer. The tomb was empty. It's especially difficult for the skeptic because the tomb in question was sealed, and it was guarded by Roman soldiers. And none of these events were done behind closed doors. They were out in the open for the world to witness. Then in verses 5 and 6, Paul begins to list the people to whom Christ appeared after his resurrection. There are many he doesn't mention, but here's who he listed for the Corinthians. Paul appeared to Peter and then to the 12. And note the radical transformation of these men These were the same fearful guys who had abandoned Jesus during his passion. And now it's only weeks later, and here they are, bold witnesses of the resurrection. And they were willing to stake their life for that belief. Jesus then appeared to more than 500 people in a single event. Most of those people were still alive, and they were no doubt telling others what they had seen. Then Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to James and to all the other apostles. And I've got to think that Paul calls out James by name, not only because he was a prominent church leader at the time, but because he was the brother of Jesus. So you can hear the argument, well, maybe this was just a case of mistaken identity, but not by his own brother. James saw and believed that his brother was the resurrected son of God. And James would later testify to that with his life. He was stoned to death for his belief in it and his preaching of it. Those of you with brothers understand how powerful that argument must be. You see, the only reasonable explanation for a transformation like that is the resurrection of Jesus. Well, then in verses 8 and 9, Paul claimed that Jesus appeared to him, to Paul, a well-educated and well-respected Pharisee. Last of all, he wrote, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Well, that makes Paul's testimony to the resurrection all the more remarkable. You see, this man was a mortal enemy of these Christ followers. So clearly, whatever this man saw 
Whatever he heard radically transformed him. One apologist summed up the evidence for the resurrection like this. During the first 11 appearances alone, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people over a 40-day period. On all 12 occasions, Jesus was seen and probably heard. Four times he offered himself to be touched. He was definitely touched twice. Jesus revealed his crucifixion scars on two occasions. In four testimonies, the empty tomb was seen, and twice the empty grave clothes were were viewed. On four other occasions, Jesus ate food. The sum total of this evidence is overwhelming confirmation that Jesus arose and lived in the same visible, tangible tangible physical body of flesh and bones that he possessed before his resurrection body. Add to that the radical transformation of the disciples, the fact that his resurrection became the dominant theme in their preaching, and the reaction of those who had rejected Jesus, and the exponential growth of the early church, and the evidence for the resurrection of Christ is compelling. There are more documents, more eyewitnesses, and more corroborative evidence for the resurrection than for any historical event of ancient history. The evidence presents a towering case for the physical uh, resurrection of Christ. In legal terms, we would say it's beyond reasonable doubt. In fact, I would suggest that that to deny the resurrection against all this evidence requires more faith than to believe it. In our text, verses 12 through 20, Paul now makes his argument about the resurrection from the dead. It's a simple argument, and it's in the negative. Some of you might be wondering, why did he choose verses 12 through 20? It's a downer. Um, The reason for that is that Josh preached on verses 1 through 11 last year, and so this just comes next. So that's what we're going to do. Let me state Paul's argument in the negative If there's no such thing as the resurrection from the dead, then obviously Christ was not raised from the dead, which in Paul's mind would be unthinkable because not only because of the overwhelming evidence that he had just presented, but because he himself had witnessed the risen Jesus. Nevertheless, if it's true that Christ was still dead, if his body was still in the grave, Paul argued that Christians are a hopeless and pitiful bunch of people. That's us. That's Paul's basic argument, and he makes it twice in this text. First in verse 13, and then again in verse 16. But it's in verse 19 that Paul runs his hypothetical argument to its logical end. If in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are of all people most to be pitied. That's the inescapable conclusion. If there's no such thing as the resurrection of the dead, then obviously Christ was not raised and Christians are pitiful. Not the resurrection Sunday sermon you expected, huh? To support his argument, Paul lays out six tragic consequences for the gospel if his hypothetical argument is true. If there is no resurrection and Jesus is still dead, our preaching is useless. 
Our faith is useless. We make God out to be a liar. Our sins are not forgiven. Dead sinners are lost forever. And believers are the most pitiful of all people. He paints a very bleak picture. I want to take a look at each one of his points. And then because of what we see in verse 20, that in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, I want to flip each of them on their head and leave you today to marvel over six glorious truths that we can bank on because Christ is risen indeed. Verse 14. If Christ was not raised from the dead, the preaching of the apostles and even the preaching of the elders of the church in Corinth was in vain. The word translated there, in vain, means empty, baseless, useless, and powerless. Preaching, Paul said, would be useless if the body of Jesus was rotting in a grave. And assuming we preach the same message today as Paul and the other apostles, then by extension, our preaching is in vain. What I'm doing right now is useless. Two reasons. First, the very heart of the message we preach would be ripped out. There would be no substance to our preaching. The kernel would be gone. Only the husk would remain Paul tells us in verses 1 and 2 that the heart of the message of preaching is the gospel, the good news that Christ died for hell-deserving sinners. That's all of us. That he died just as the scriptures said he would. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day just the way the scriptures said he would. Gut that message from our preaching and all that's left is lame entertainment or empty, powerless, guilt-inducing moralism. You've heard those sermons. You should be in church every Sunday, not just Easter. You should pray more often. You should read your Bible every day. And don't forget to put money in that offering plate. Oh, yes, and stop cussing. God doesn't like that. That's not good news. That's not the gospel Doing those things or not doing those things cannot remove the filth or the guilt of the sin with which you were born. And it cannot remove the filth or the guilt of the sins that you have since committed against a perfectly pure and holy God. Rules or laws cannot change your heart and they cannot make you right before God. That's the sin problem. Moralism is powerless to rescue sinners because sinners are enslaved. Their hearts are enslaved to sin. But the gospel can rescue them. Gut the gospel from preaching, and we're just spewing hopeless moralism. And it either disheartens the hearers or it puffs them up with pride when they feel some measure of success. Paul is clearly saying that if there is no resurrection, our preaching has no message and no substance to offer. It is vain. It is empty. Number two, not only would the heart of the message be gutted if there were no resurrection, but there would be no power in our preaching. We don't often speak of preaching in terms of power, but Paul did. 
And he used that exact language at the beginning of this same letter. He told the Corinthians in chapter 1, for the word of the cross, that's the preaching of the good news, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, pay attention to his verb, who are being saved. It's in the present ongoing tense. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So if there is no resurrection, there's no gospel message and no gospel power in what we preach. Preaching is useless. Now you might be telling yourself, well, for the first tragic consequence, Tate, that might not be the end of the world. You see, I'm not a preacher. Your preaching might be in vain, but that doesn't necessarily affect me. Well, you got to love the order that Paul uses here. Think of his letter to the Romans. In chapter 10, he used this logic. How will they call on him of whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And that word believe, it's the same word as the word faith. How are they to have faith in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? And in verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's the connection. We're still in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised and our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In verse 17, Paul adds to that. Not only is your faith in vain, but it's futile. It's of no use. It's empty, fruitless, useless, powerless, lacking truth. As Calvin puts it, it's worthless. That's consequence number two. Not only is your faith in vain, but it's futile. It is of no use. If there's no resurrection, there's no message, no power in what we preach because there's no gospel in it. And if there's no gospel in it, in it then, our, then your faith is worthless. Let me try to define this word faith. I hope I've made it crystal clear that the foundational belief of the Christian faith is the gospel. But let it be known that you can believe in all the historical facts of the gospel and not be a Christian. You can say, I agree. There was a historical man named Jesus. He lived in the first century. He died on a cross for sinners. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And he was raised to life on the third day. You can believe all of those truths and you can be as lost as the atheist who denies the very existence of the Creator. That's because true faith not only agrees to the facts of the gospel, but true faith trusts, receives, and embraces those truths. John MacArthur defined faith as the entire soul turning to God and trusting in the person and work of Christ to provide forgiveness righteousness, and eternal life. That's a far cry from admitting merely to the truth of the facts. That's not believing a man can walk a wheelbarrow across a tightrope suspended over Niagara Falls. That's getting into the wheelbarrow. That's faith. So if there is no resurrection, 
There is no gospel message. There's no gospel power in what we preach. And your faith or your belief is empty, fruitless, useless, powerless, just as useless as our preaching. But it gets worse. Consequence number three, verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. If there is no resurrection, God did not raise Jesus from the dead, and we lie about him when we say he did. We impugn his name, and we make him out to be a liar because we claim to be preaching and speaking in God's name. This is a tricky one to get a hold of. Put yourself for a moment in Paul's first century sandals. He was one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus after the resurrection. If Paul claimed that he saw and heard something that in fact he didn't, he was not just deceived, he's a deceiver. Worse than that, he's saying that God did something that he knows full well God didn't actually do. That goes beyond spreading falsehood. It's blasphemous to attribute to God something that he did not, in fact, do. You know, the same principle applies to you and I. If there is no resurrection from the dead, and we claim a heart transformed by the risen Christ, we not only lie, but we misrepresent God. We misrepresent God. That's the language of our text. That is blasphemous. Consequence number four, verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. In verse 14, Paul told us that if there was no resurrection, our faith was empty. Here he goes further, and he emphasizes the fact that not only is it empty, it is ineffective, it is powerless. Our faith can accomplish nothing because it was founded upon nothing. There was no message and no power to our preaching because there was no gospel. And faith in that is powerless to save sinners. The sin problem I mentioned earlier remains unsolved. You see, sin requires death. The wages of sin, Paul wrote to the church in Rome, is death. So if Jesus remained dead, then either he was a sinner and death is what he was due, or if he was sinless, maybe God didn't accept his atonement for our sins. Both of those are absurd options. But nevertheless, if there was no resurrection, you and I would remain alienated without hope and without God in this world. And we would be facing judgment, the judgment we rightfully deserve for our sins against our Creator. That is true hopelessness. Consequence number five. If there is no resurrection, then in verse 18, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. It's a wonderful little phrase, fall asleep in Christ. I wasted, not wasted, but I spent probably an hour researching every time that was used in the scriptures. And uh, it is only used of believers. There are, there's one or two places where you wonder, um, but, the, but the idea of falling asleep, it's not death, it's not the end, 
but there's going to be a day when you're going to be awakened. It's wonderful. It's used primarily of the believer. Those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Death then has the final victory. As pastor and Bible commentator David Pryor wrote, another awful consequence of there being no resurrection is that death remains. And it's not just the last enemy, but it's the one invincible terror. Death is the hard confirmation of the lostness of all men, that we are all doomed to perish without hope and without God. No resurrection, no gospel. No gospel, no forgiveness of sins. Death wins. Consequence number six. And this consequence is really just the culmination of the five that came before it. Verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Well, that's quite natural if our preaching is worthless and our faith is useless and we lie about God and we make him out to be a liar and we're still dead in our sins and if dead believers are simply lost forever, we are truly pitiful people. But I think Paul had even more in mind here. He knows the life to which the believer was called and he knows it's not an easy road See, in American Christianity, we, we often hold to this idea that you become a Christian and life gets better. Yeah, the homeless drunk in the gutter finds a gospel tract. And of course, he prays the sinner's prayer, and now he's a millionaire on the church speaking circuit. Well, in much of the world, that is not the way it works. It certainly isn't what we find in the Scriptures Become a Christian in some Muslim countries and your entire family will disown you. And the authorities may even cut your head off for it. Just a few paragraphs later in this letter, Paul says, why are we in danger every hour? That's Paul's experience. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. And elsewhere, Paul's quoting a psalm here. He says, we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's Paul's experience. That's what we signed up for as believers. We were never promised an easy time in this life. Here's a sampling of the promises we hold on to. And some of these are just beautiful. And some of them are terrifying. Jesus, talking to his disciples, said, I've said these things to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world, though, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Again, Jesus said, I truly say to you that there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, and mothers, and children, and land. And then he drops the bomb with persecutions. And in this, and in the age to come, eternal life. And here's how Paul explained it to the young preacher Titus. 
Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's what the Christian life is. So if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? But Christ is risen. Thank God for verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been risen, has been raised from the dead. The supreme Lord of the new creation, as we've learned recently in our study of the book of Colossians, is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. So let's flip each of these hypotheticals on their head because, in fact, Christ has been raised. Yes, if there is no resurrection, our preaching would be useless, but since Christ has been raised, our preaching is profoundly useful. It is well-founded and powerful and effective, provided its message is the gospel and provided its power is the gospel. And the reason we know that is because it is founded on the rock-solid truth of the gospel, which is, as you all know, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Gospel preachers can rest assured that God's word will never return empty, and God will accomplish what he purposed. Marvel over that truth, brothers and sisters, because of the resurrection that we celebrate today, preaching, gospel preaching, is well-founded and effective. Number two, it's true. If there was no resurrection, your faith would be useless. But since Christ was raised, your faith is not in vain. It is fruitful and it is able to save you. Listen to this resurrection promise. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe, remember that word believe is the same as faith, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is sure and certain. Marvel over that, brothers and sisters. Because of the resurrection, your faith is not in vain. Number three. If there was no resurrection, of course, our testimony would make God out to be a liar. But since Christ was raised, our testimony is truth. We don't impugn God's name and we don't slander his reputation. We speak what is true when we say that he raised Jesus from the dead. And when we say that he transformed our, sinner, our sinful hearts, we are not liars and we do not blaspheme the holy name of our God. Marvel over that truth, brothers and sisters. It is because of the resurrection that we can preach and speak with full confidence of the truth of the resurrection of our Lord. One commentator put it like this, the only convincing reason for linking God to the work and person of Jesus is the fact of the resurrection. Only God has power over death. If Jesus rose from the dead, then God raised him. That's true. Marvel in it. As we celebrate the resurrection today, if Jesus rose from the dead, God was the one who did it. Number four, if there is no resurrection, then we're dead in our sins. But since Christ was raised, 
sins of believers have been forgiven. The sin problem has been solved. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I could never live, as Mark taught us at the Good Friday gathering. On the cross, a great exchange took place. My sins were transferred to him. He paid for them in full. He absorbed the wrath of God that I deserved, and his righteousness became mine. And then God raised Jesus from the dead because death could not hold him. Death had no right over him. Jesus triumphed over death. And the resurrection put the stamp of God's approval of his atoning sacrifice on display for the world to witness. Marvel over that truth today. Because of the resurrection, the sins of believers have been forgiven. Number five. If there was no resurrection, dead believers perish forever. But since Christ was raised, believers have a sure and certain hope of their own resurrection. According to God's great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope. The life of the Christian is not hopeless. It is full of hope. We are a hopeful people. We're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what is that hope? It is an inheritance that is imperishable. It is undefiled. It never fades and it is kept secure for you in heaven. Marvel over that truth today. Because of the resurrection the resurrection of believers is a sure and certain thing. Number six, if there was no resurrection and we have hope in this life only, then sure, we are of all people most to be pitied. But brothers and sisters, Christ was raised. And because of that, far from being pitiful, Believers are the most blessed among men. I can't help but think of all of the Beatitudes, and I, I won't read each of them. But believers are the most blessed among men. God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And if we had all day, I would enumerate those blessings and expound on each one. We're justified we're redeemed. Our hearts have been made new. They're alive. We're new creatures. We've been adopted by a loving heavenly father. We have an eternal inheritance secured for us. We've been reconciled to God. We have forgiveness of sins. We have eternal life. We have the Holy Spirit within us. 